Hello, I'm Jonathan Eder, host of the Mary Baker Eddy Library Seekers and Scholars podcast. Every once in a while, we record an episode in front of a live audience. And in this case, it seems particularly appropriate. The episode is about a new edition of a masterwork, Robert Peel's three-volume biography of Mary Baker Eddy. The volumes were published over a little more than a decade. The first volume, The Years of Discovery, came out in 1966, followed by The Years of Trial in 1971, and finally The Years of Authority in 1977. When the first volume of The Years of Discovery came out, it left reviewers wanting more. Raymond J. Cunningham, a distinguished professor of American history at Fordham University, wrote the following in his review of the book, quote, This intellectual biography analyzes the evolution of Mrs. Eddy's insight from the early rejection of her father's Calvinism to publication of Science and Health, 1875. It is a compelling story of a deeply religious nature wrestling with the great issues of life and death, not as abstract theological questions, but as they emerged from the agonizing experiences of a soul that had gone into the depths. The review continued. As Peel gives no indication that he plans a sequel, one can only hope that he will pursue this biography to its conclusion. Without consideration of the stormy years during which she created and sustained her church, an adequate evaluation of this unique American woman is impossible. Well, indeed. Peel did go on to cover the huge expanse of Eddie's life. And today, we have the opportunity to discuss the decision to issue a new edition of this landmark text, looking at what was involved in its development, what it offers the reader, while also considering the impact of the original work, and in learning a bit more about Peel himself. With us is Dr. Ryan Vigil. He is Manager, General Publications, the Christian Science Publishing Society. Ryan was lead for the project for a new edition of Peel's biography of Mary Baker Eddy. Welcome, Ryan. Happy to be here. So, Ryan, just curious, what would be the ratio of the time you spent on the new edition of the first volume, The Years of Discovery, versus the amount of time it would take the general reader to read it. In, oh, boy. In, including footnotes. <laughs> including uh, footnotes. It's about 400 pages. Okay, yeah, I'm not sure I can answer that question, but <laughs> I, I imagine an ambitious reader could conceivably read this in days or weeks, possibly months. We were working on this for years. Well, thank you for that extraordinary effort. Also with us is Dorothy Rivera. Dorothy is manager of research services at the Mary Bacardi Library. And she was the lead in conducting research from our collections for the new edition. Welcome, Dorothy. Thank you for having me. And we are delighted to welcome Diane Hanover to the podcast. Diane has had a background in publishing, including as an editor at Houghton Mifflin. But her connection to our podcast conversation today comes from her time with the Christian Science Church's Committee on Publication in the 1980s. It was during this period that Diane had the occasion to work with Robert Peel. Work for the Committee on Publication includes writing, speaking, or corresponding with theologians, academics, authors, members of the press, students, health officials, or legislators on matters relating to the church. Currently, Diane is Committee on Publication for the state of Arizona. So great to have you, Diane. Thank you. It's lovely to be here. And we are so pleased to have Dr. Jillian Gill with us. 
1998, Jillian's biography of Mary Baker Eddy came out as part of the Radcliffe biography series. Jillian, I remember quite vividly the great excitement that your book generated when it came out and continues to generate. Jillian is the author of a number of other biographies which focus on notable women. Among them, Agatha Christie, Florence Nightingale, Queen Victoria, and Virginia Woolf. Thank you so much, Jillian, for being with us today. It's great to have you. I am delighted to have been invited. So, Ryan, why a new edition? I mean, this is a work that continues to feed ideas, new scholarship, to um, be cited, something that's recognized. Why, why a new edition? At the heart of the why, why do this, is the subject itself. This is a biography of Mary Baker Eddy, a critical figure in American religious history. And it's not just the story of one woman's life, although it is that, uh, but a biography of Mary Baker Eddy is also the story of the discovery of Christian science, right. uh, the foundation of the First Church of Christ scientist, and the building of a global religious movement. For me, the, the simplest and the most direct answer to that question comes down to the word significance. Mm -hmm. uh, it's significant in terms of its subject matter, it's significant in terms of its scale and scope, and it's proven to be significant in terms of its impact on subsequent scholarship. So it's a profound story, and that significance warrants the kind of treatment that Peel gave it. So the enduring value of, of Peel's work calls for a second edition. As you mentioned, the first volume, The Years of Discovery, was published in 1966, and that's over 50 years ago. And it's remarkable to consider that in those 50 years, that book has remained continuously in print. So when you're involved in doing the research and in just kind of imagining what that new edition is going to look like, what did you think of in terms of the reader? How does it serve the new reader? How does it serve somebody who maybe is already well acquainted with the three-volume biography? What more does it deliver? In what ways is it sort of caring for that consciousness and that attention that's coming to the work, either for the first time or maybe after having read it many, many times over. Yeah, well, I love your use of the word caring there, mm -hmm. because in the course of working on this project, one of the things that's become apparent time and time again is the level of care that Robert Peel himself brought to this project. Uh, there was a clear sense of duty, responsibility, an incredibly high standard in terms of integrity, scholarship. It, it really, inhabits a very elevated place in terms of its, its accomplishment as a work of historical research and writing. So our starting point was recognizing that foundation of integrity that Peel brought to the work and simply wanting to make that as available as possible to a modern reader. Mm -hmm. um, one of the most useful changes in the new edition is actually a very simple change. It's the relocation of Peel's notes from an extensive section of endnotes at the back of the book <laughs> yeah. to footnotes at the bottom of each page. Yeah. It seems like a simple thing, but having that material so easily accessible mm -hmm. makes a profound difference in terms of the experience that a reader is going to have. I would say, um, because I'm sure that there are a lot of people who fall into this category, I know I'm one of them, it is possible to flip back and forth every time there's a footnote. 
But you know, what's interesting is that the notes in this work, broadly speaking, fall into two categories. There are some notes that are really just citing a source, mm -hmm. and it's often quite mechanical. It's you know a, an author's name, a title, publication details, a page number, that kind of thing. Maybe it's an archival source, and there's very interesting information to be gleaned there. But there's other kinds of notes which are expansive, which are discursive, where Peel takes the opportunity to go a little deeper into mm -hmm. his subject matter. And if you're a reader who's been conditioned to flip to the back of the book every time there's a footnote number, and you keep on getting to a sort of single line citation that's just got a bunch of numbers and letters and doesn't mean that much to you, you might stop flipping back and forth right. at a certain point. Right. And in that process, you would have missed a lot of the value in the book. So just putting that on the page and creating that level of accessibility to the reader is a huge improvement to the reading experience. Going off of that, one of the things that you really see when you do have those footnotes now right in front of you is how what Robert Peel is doing here is in a lot of ways different than previous authors because they did not go into the archives. They didn't have access to it. They didn't see Mary Baker Eddy's correspondence. With these footnotes, you're creating the sense of reliability, the sense of accountability that the reader can see. Mm -hmm. And I think that's so important when you're talking about using a reliable historical secondary source. Absolutely. One of the wonderful opportunities that we have because of the existence of the Mary Baker Eddy Library, which isn't a thing that existed in the world at the time that Peel was doing his work, is we can now take these archival items and explain to the reader exactly what they are, when possible put a date on them, provide an accession number so that if they want, they can reach out to the Mary Baker Eddy Library and put their eyes on that actual piece of archival material. I love the print edition. It's beautiful. It has such lovely photos. It's such a, <laughs> the footnotes are so great. But another way that you can look at it actually is by going to JSH Online, and there's a whole section of biographies. If you look at the footnotes in JSH Online and you see those accession numbers, for those of you who don't live in this world, those are essentially unique identification numbers for each of these documents. You can click on those. It will take you to the Mary Baker Eddy papers. And what you can do in that, it's amazing. You can actually see the letters that Mary Baker Eddy wrote. There are transcriptions of the letters because if you don't spend your life with Mary Baker Eddy's handwriting, it's an acquired taste, <laughs> takes some time. They even do annotations to this. And so the depth of knowledge you can acquire from this is great. This sort of allows Peel to kind of serve as your guide through that. I think it's really fun. So Diane, you actually worked with Robert Peel, you knew him. Can you give us any insight into how do the qualities of the book reflect the qualities of the man? That's a really lovely question to ask, particularly in relation to Bob Peel. I do wanna say that I know there were others here too who oh, also okay. worked with <laughs> and loved and knew him. So I'm not the world's leading authority on Robert Peel. <laughs> well, you are for the moment. <laughs> <laughs> but just someone who, um, who loved and respected him and learned how to work watching Robert Peel in relation to the values that he poured into this book. I came to the work of the Committee on Publication in college and met Bob when I was in college. His final book had come out two years earlier. And for a couple of years, I was stationed next to his secretary, so his office was there, and I was won over from him. I observed him a lot. He was kind of a rock star to me. I had read his books. I had come to this thinking, wow, this man is 
so erudite. But as I watched him interact in the workplace with me, who was nobody, and with people of great stature and scholars who came and went in his office, I started to see that he treated everyone with the same Christian respect and kindness. He was a gentleman in all ways. He was always kind. His door was open to anyone who wanted to come talk to him about Mary Baker Eddy or other things related to the church's history. I saw that respect for the truth, respect for facts, no interest in massaging or spinning facts because he had seen that everything that had been written about Mrs. Eddy when he was a young man at Harvard and coming through the, was it, he called it um, healthy skepticism of Christian science, (laughs) you know? He, He basically said, while he wasn't sure when he was a college undergrad that Mrs. Eddy's explanation of healing was true, He could not deny the facts of healing that he had seen in his own life, that he had experienced. And he eventually came to see through his study and his integrity that that Mrs. Eddy's explanation of the healing process that she talked about was the right explanation. But where his scholarship was first rate, as others have said, he's a top-ranked scholar, he saw a world beyond scholarship. He saw the world that Mary Baker Eddy was writing about in her books and in founding this church. It was his Christianity, I think, and his Christian character that allowed him to have this credible insider view of Mary Baker Eddy as a Christian woman. That was something I learned from just sitting outside Bob Peel's office. (laughs) (laughs) That's wonderful. You know, what you're saying just really sort of goes to the heart of the podcast. I mean, we call it Seekers and Scholars, and part of the rationale for that name is this idea that scholarship can be part of something bigger. It can be part of spiritual quest. He wrote these books in his evenings and, and weekends. It took him 20 years to complete them right. while he was working full-time for the church. Yeah. So it was a process of love throughout his life, yeah. yeah. Well, Jillian, you wrote a wonderful biography of Mary Baker Eddy, but I know that Bob Peel was a little bit there in the, in the background for you as part of that process, what did he mean for you in terms of your work in researching and writing about Mary Baker Eddy? Well, first let me say what a pleasure it is to be here. A little of what's been said today by the previous speakers makes me want to almost cry because this is a new world. This is a different world of scholarship and understanding from the one that I entered into in 1992. Everything is different. So I'm like a ghost from, of, from Christmas past. <laughs> um, I didn't meet Peel, of course. He died in January 1992. Sometime in the months after that death, strangely, the word, the name Mary Baker Eddy was said to me for the very first time. And then within a year, in January 1993, I signed a contract with Addison Wesley to provide a biography for the Radcliffe biography series on Mary Baker Eddy. How did I decide that? I was perhaps the person least qualified to undertake that project. Well, what happened? Well, I think, if I may say so, it was a leap of faith. And I say this as a person who does not identify herself as a person of faith. I read the first chapters of Peel's book, 
and I knew I could say something about this woman, that this is someone I wanted to write about. And I can't explain that. But a little flame was lit in me, and I went forward. My project was to write a short, you know, 300 page, <laughs> um, uh, in two years, biography, where you can see what came out. And <laughs> I should tell you, it's two thirds of the manuscript I submitted to the poor people at. My poor editor, I mean, what she suffered from me. I put as much as I could in the notes that they took out of the text, but still, you get the problem. This is my biggest book. I spent more time on this. This is my most scholarly work. I cannot account for it, except from the fact that I got into the orbit of what I call the P-lights, the friends, the colleagues of Robert Peel. And above all, because we speak through our books, I speak directly to Robert Peel through his book, just as I speak directly to Mrs. Eddy when I read her words, right? This is the closest we get. I had Robert Peel and his disciples to guide my hand. I'll name two, Stephen Gottschalk, who had already written an important book on Christian science when I came to know him, who became a great friend, and Tom Proctor at the Longyear Museum. I felt Peel in his people, and he lived on in them, I feel. And then there was the book itself. When I entered the Longyear Museum, I actually saw for the first time an autograph, a thing that a person had actually written in the 19th century in handwriting with a terrible pen, with little squiggles on the side and that sort of thing. And I realized what I had been missing all my life <laughs> as that this was getting in touch with the person. And I got that at the long year and I longed to have it again. And therefore I applied to have access to the Christian Science Archive absolutely expecting not to get any of it because I read in all the biographies that you couldn't get in, right? It was a locked box. And I'd been familiar with the locked box syndrome from my work on Agatha Christie, whose papers are all in private access. And only at that point when I was writing, one person had been allowed to read them. So that was fine with me. I was just going to go on publish sources. I go to the long year and I find Autographs, I find the family papers. I start to become an historian. And it's an exciting experience where I want to continue it. And therefore, I get in touch with the archives. And eventually, I become able to read in their collection. Now, um, I want to say something about my book, if I can. Because it is my most scholarly book. And I think I gave, do you mind if I say this? four major contributions to the understanding of, of Mrs. Eddy within a historical context. An understanding about the history of hysteria and insanity. I was able, I think, to destroy the idea propagated by Milman and continuing right to almost to the present day, you know, to people like Carolyn Fraser, that Miss, Mrs. Eddy had been an hysteric from childhood. I knew this was stupid and wrong. I knew my <laughs> Freud, I knew my Schaffel. Okay, I didn't know anything much else, but I did know them. Um, so I destroyed that. I dreaded 
thinking about Quimby, but I did dive into Quimby. I went to BU. I found absolutely clear proof that Quimby was barely literate. He could not possibly have written anything. And that, in fact, I, as a feminist scholar, uh, suggest that, in fact, the work that's attributed to Quimby is largely the work of the two persons referred to as the Mrs. Ware. I looked at the whole sort of snide insinuations that Mrs. Eddy might have had lesbian uh, proclivities, which was so stupid. But I was able, as a feminist scholar, to show that the kinds of ways that she addressed women in her letters, women like Sarah Crosby, was typical of women of her period. I eliminated that. And I think my final and best part is my section on the next friend suit. The, the, the sort of defense lawyer aspect of my book. I did what I should have done from the beginning. I should have trusted her. I finally found her. And I realize now looking back, I reread my biography this last week. What I should have done was to remain within the P-Lite circle as it existed in those days. And simply gone back to tuning into Mrs. Eddy's voice as directed to me through her vector, her medium, her prophet, Robert Peel, and go back to the words that had set off that little flame in me in 1992. I wish I could off my thinker. <laughs> Think of that. This is a woman who never stopped thinking, right? And who was told that women were not supposed <laughs> to think. Oh, how I wish I had a father who had ever been willing to let me know something. This is a woman thirsting for knowledge. And most importantly, after committing some childish sin, confessing it to her mother and being chastised and then forgiven, asking her mother whether eternal punishment was really true and had been told with a sigh that it was. She said, what if we repent and tell God we are sorry and will not do so again? Will God punish us? Then he is not as good as my mother. And he will find me a hard case. <laughs> Jillian, you championed so many things that were so important. But thank you so much for making that connection between your work, what inspired your work, and Robert Peel and, and his work. The title of his first volume is The Years of Discovery. And I'm just curious, you know, Ryan and Dorothy, what was the discovery process like for you as you went through it? In creating this new edition, were there new revelations that came to you? Little gems or, or something more comprehensive, more thematic that had you not undertaken this work, you, you wouldn't have recognized about the story of Mary Baker Eddy or what was in Peel? It is a myriad assortment of little gems, so many little gems that it wouldn't be possible to list them all. I, I could think of a few examples, and it very much came out of this process working with the library, getting back to the original documents, really following Peel's example, the, the level of rigor, um, the standard that he set, and insisting on following each one of these sources as far back as it could possibly go. One of the special values that I've found in Peel is He's working on such a large canvas, he's got space to operate. So his biography is not 
just a marching through of the events of Mary Baker Eddy's life. He takes the time to set the stage. He establishes the context, the cultural, historical context. Um, he paints the picture so vividly that as a reader, it, it draws you in and you understand the events of Mary Baker Eddy's life in greater depth and nuance because of the effort that he goes to. One of the things that he's constantly doing is referencing influential literary figures, things that Mary Baker Eddy would have read. Revelations, small and large, came out. One that immediately comes to mind, and it might seem like a little thing, but in tracking down an original source of a poem that Peel references, one of the things that he had access to was one of her so-called copybooks. Dorothy could speak to this more than I could. Think about them kind of in the way that you'd think about a notebook. And I mean, if there's one thing that girls and young women seem to have done throughout time is sort of keep track of completely random information in their copybooks. And it might be their writing down something that they read that was interesting. It might be the list of 15 people you want at your birthday party in six months. Some of the stuff in Eddie's copybooks are really fascinating because she isn't, in a lot of ways, just another young woman or just another little girl. She's a writer. She's someone who thinks about the Bible, even from sort of her earliest days. And so there are these kind of little nuggets just sprinkled throughout the collection. So this is just sort of one of so many examples, but there's a point where Peel's talking about the copybook, and this is in a footnote, of course. <laughs> so, but he says, a sonnet on the theme, they that seek me early shall find me, in her notebook expresses this very beautifully. And then he says, if written by Mrs. Glover, as she was then known at the time, herself, it is one of the finest poems she ever wrote, but the authorship is not quite clear. Well, this is really interesting. Writing in 1965 with the tools that were available to any researcher at that time, this was a very reasonable thing for him to say because it came in a source that had a mixture of things that she wrote herself, things that she copied from published sources, etc. But what we know now is it was in her hand, and she put her initials at the end. Peel had to be very judicious. He couldn't say, we know for sure that Mary Baker Eddy wrote this. And in fact, we can't say that we know for <laughs> sure that Mary Baker Eddy wrote this, but because basically almost all of published poetry has been digitized at this point and is available to modern researchers, we were able to conduct an exhaustive search of everything that has been published. And we have not found this material anywhere but in Mrs. Eddy's copybook. So there's a little note here. Again, we can't claim something that we don't know for sure, but it just says this. Subsequent research shows that the poem is signed and in Glover's hand and appears to be unique. And so there's, in a sense, there's a new poem by Mary Baker Eddy that the research that went into this new edition has been able to uncover. That's a little gem. That's one little gem. But I, I would only say that, you know, in addition to those smaller and very numerous moments of revelation, what I discovered more than anything else was a very special kinship between Robert Peel and Mary Baker Eddy in the sense that we're talking about two people who were clearly driven by a deep conviction of purpose and mission. Mm -hmm. Diane, I'm curious, kind of alluded to this, but who were the mentors for Peel himself that sort of established his sense of what it meant to conduct meaningful 
scholarship, scholarship with integrity, scholarship that had a real purpose. Do you mean like in his academic career back at Harvard? Yeah. Peel was an undergrad at Harvard in the late 20s and early 30s, and he did graduate work at Harvard too. He was mentored by Perry Miller. Mm -hmm. um, he was a great historian of New England religious culture and thought. He had interactions with T.S. Eliot. Eliot published a paper he wrote about Virginia Woolf in Eliot's magazine in London, The Criterion. He, as a student, made a doctoral proposal about a dissertation on Mary Baker Eddy, and Harvard thought it was too hot to handle. Um, hmm. They wouldn't let him write about Mrs. Eddy, though they said it was a legitimate area of study, but he could do it independently. And so he, he did later. But it, he was studying and thinking at a time when lots of very critical material was being circulated about Mrs. Eddy. Um, he knew this needed to be answered because basically there were two kinds of scholarship then. There was, as he put it, the rose-colored glasses, and there was the black, the critics. He was widely recognized to be the first genuine scholarly examination of Mary Baker Eddy's life. And he certainly was the first to have complete access to the archives so that he could weigh the evidence on both sides and see where the facts led him and with great integrity and, and with great insight shine some light on these issues as, as you did in sorting through all those things related to Mrs. Eddy in the, in the background. Uh, could I say one thing as a British person? <laughs> Um, Robert Peel was born in Britain. Yes. Um, <laughs> yes, yes. <laughs> I think we can claim him a little bit. Um, because Britain have done more with biography than any other country. I think I can claim that. And Robert Peel is in the great tradition of British biography. <laughs> so um, what we have now is the new edition of Mary Baker Eddy, The Years of Discovery. Two other volumes are forthcoming. And any thoughts as to when they might be available? Certainly in coming years. Okay. <laughs> I would only say, and you can imagine this, I mean, we did begin work on this project in 2020. Okay. And it released in 2023. Now, we believe very strongly that the succeeding volumes will be coming out on a more accelerated schedule. We've learned a lot. Yeah. Well, fantastic. It's been a great pleasure spending this time talking with you about Robert Peel, about uh, the value of his work and the value of this new edition for a new time. When um, people are expecting more in the way of access, they're expecting more in the way of transparency. That's what the digital age has brought. And it's nice to know that Robert Peel is going to be a vital presence in the digital age as, as he has been in the analog age, if you will, or in the, the preceding <laughs> decades. So, Thank you so much, Ryan. Thank you so much, Dorothy. Thank you so much, Diane. Thank you so much, Jillian. Thank you so much for joining us for this episode on reissuing a masterwork, a new edition of Robert Peel's biography, Mary Baker Eddy. This was edited from an event with a live audience. Our panel of four discussed what was involved in developing a new edition, as well as the impact of the original work and giving insight into the man behind it, Robert Peel. We hope you'll join us for our next episode. 
in which we'll be looking at the marriages of Mary Baker Eddy, what they meant for her in the trajectory of her life, and how they corresponded with emerging trends in American culture at the time around marriage and the respective roles of spouses within the marital contract. I'm Jonathan Eder. Thank you so much for listening to Seekers and Scholars. This podcast was produced by the Mary Baker Eddy Library. Copyright 2023.